LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, here with another reading of the Argonautica. Honestly, I mean, now that we're so deep into the world of Medea and Jason lying to Medea's face and pretending like he'll love her forever in Greece and that she'll be treated like a goddess there, it's getting a lot more fun because, I mean, Lord, that guy... What an absolute fucking asshole. (laughs) 
Anyway, as I mentioned in the last reading episode, the readings of book four are going to come in place of regular Tuesday episodes. That is because, provided everything went smoothly, I am now in Greece wearing a mask. Do not worry, using my tourism money to boost the economy and being as safe as humanly possible sitting outside and wearing a mask. And am I doing all of this to reassure myself too? Yes, absolutely, because the pandemic is still very real, very, very in the midst of going on. And anyway, get vaccinated. I am. Thank you all so much for listening to these reading episodes uh, on these Tuesdays. And then on Fridays, we will be having conversation episodes with some really incredible people. So stay tuned for all of that. And I mean, watch out for all the pictures I'm surely posting on Instagram, even though I'm recording this well in advance of that trip. Just a reminder where we last left our trepid Argonauts, even though they're not really in it all that much right now. It's mostly about Jason and Medea. Jason had just accomplished the first of the tasks set out by Aetes that are definitely meant to kill him, but he has Medea, and Lord would he have died without her. This is The Argonautica by Apollonius, translated by R.C. Seton, Book 4, Part 1. Now do yourself, goddess muse, daughter of Zeus, tell of the labor and wiles of the Colchian maiden. Surely my soul within me wavers with speechless amazement, as I ponder whether I should call it the lovesick grief of mad passion or a panic flight through which she left the Colchian folk. Aetes all night long with the bravest captains of his people was devising in his halls sheer treachery against the heroes, with fierce wrath in his heart at the issue of the hateful contest. Nor did he deem at all that these things were being accomplished without the knowledge of his daughters. But into Medea's heart Hera cast most grievous fear, and she trembled like a nimble fawn whom the baying of hounds hath terrified amid the thicket of a deep copse, for at once she truly foreboded that the aid she had given was not hidden from her father, and that quickly she would fill up the cup of woe. And she dreaded the guilty knowledge of her handmaidens, her eyes were filled with fire, and her ears rung with a terrible cry. Often did she clutch at her throat, and often did she drag out her hair by the roots and groan in wretched despair. There, on that very day, the maiden would have tasted the drugs and perished, and so have made void the purposes of Hera, had not the goddess driven her, all bewildered, to flee with the sons of Phrixus, and her fluttering soul within her was comforted, and then she poured from her bosom all the drugs back again into the casket." Then she kissed her bed and the folding doors on both sides, and stroked the walls, and tearing away in her hands a long tress of hair, she left it in the chamber for her mother, a memorial of her maidenhood, and thus lamented with passionate voice, 
I go, leaving this long tress here in my stead. Oh, mother mine, take this farewell from me as I go far hence. Farewell, Calciope, and all my home. Would that the sea, stranger, had dashed you to pieces ere you came to the Colchian land. Thus she spoke, and from her eyes shed copious tears, and as a bondmaid steals away from a wealthy house whom fate has lately severed from her native land, nor yet has she made trial of grievous toil, but still unschooled to misery and shrinking in terror from slavish tasks, goes about beneath the cruel hands of a mistress. Even so the lovely maiden rushed forth from her home. But to her the bolts of the doors gave way, self-moved, leaping backwards at the swift strains of her magic song. And with bare feet she sped along the narrow paths, with her left hand holding her robe over her brow to veil her face and fair cheeks, and with her right lifting up the hem of her tunic. Quickly along the dark track, outside the towers of the spacious city, did she come in fear, nor did any of the warders note her, but she sped on unseen by them. Thence she was minded to go to the temple, for well she knew the way, having often aforetime wandered there in quest of corpses and noxious roots of the earth, as a sorceress is wont to do, and her soul fluttered with quivering fear. And the Titanian goddess, the moon, rising from a far land, beheld her as she fled, distraught, and fiercely exulted over her, and thus spoke to her own heart. Not I alone then stray to the Latinian cave, nor do I alone burn with love for fair Endymion. Oft-times with thought of love have I been driven away by your crafty spells, in order that in the darkness of night you might work your sorcery at ease, even the deeds dear to you. And now you yourself have part in a like mad passion, and some god of affection has given you Jason to be your grievous woe. Well, go on and steal your heart, wise though you be, to take up your burden of pain, fraught with many sighs. Thus spoke the goddess, but swiftly the maiden's feet bore her, hasting on, and gladly did she gain the high bank of the river, and beheld on the opposite side the gleam of fire, which all night long the heroes were kindling in joy at the contest's issue. Then, through the gloom, with clear pealing voice from across the stream, she called on Frontis, the youngest of Phrixus's sons, and he with his brothers and Aeson's son recognized the maiden's voice, and in silence his comrades wondered when they knew it was so in truth. Thrice she called, and thrice at the bidding of the company Frontis called out in reply, and meantime the heroes were rowing with swift-moving oars in search of her, not yet were they casting the ship's hawsers upon the opposite bank, when Jason with light feet leapt to land from the deck above, and after him Frontis and Argus, sons of Phrixus, leapt to the ground, and she, clasping their knees with both hands, thus addressed them. Save me, the hapless one, my friends from Aetes, and yourselves too, for all is brought to light, nor does any remedy come. But let us flee upon the ship, before the king mounts his swift chariot, and I will lull to sleep the guardian serpent, and give you the fleece of gold. But do you, stranger, amid your comrades, make the gods witness of the vows you have taken on yourself for my sake. 
and now that I have fled far from my country, make me not a mark for blame and dishonor for want of kinsmen. She spoke in anguish, but greatly did the heart of Eason's son rejoice, and at once, as she fell at his knees, he raised her gently and embraced her, and spoke words of comfort. Lady, let Zeus of Olympus himself be witness to my oath, and Hera, queen of marriage, bride of Zeus, that I will set you in my halls, my own wedded wife, when we have reached the land of Hellas on our return. Thus he spoke, and straightway clasped her right hand in his, and she bade them row the swift ship to the sacred grove near at hand, in order that, while it was still night, they might seize and carry off the fleece against the will of Aetes. Word and deed were one to the eager crew, for they took her on board and straightway thrust the ship from shore, and loud was the din as the chieftain strained at their oars. But she, starting back, held out her hands in despair towards the shore. But Jason spoke cheering words and restrained her grief. Now at the hour when men have cast sleep from their eyes, huntsmen, who, trusting to their hounds, never slumber away the end of night, but avoid the light of dawn lest, smiting with its white beams, it efface the track and scent of the quarry. Then did Eason's son and the maiden step forth from the ship over a grassy spot, the ram's couch, as men call it, where it first bent its wearied knees in rest, bearing on its back the Minian son of Athamas. And close by, all smirched with soot, was the base of the altar, which the Iolid Phrixus once set up to Zeus, the alder of fugitives, when he sacrificed the golden wonder at the bidding of Hermes, who graciously met him on the way. There, by the counsels of Argus, the chieftains put them ashore. And they too by the pathway came to the sacred grove, seeking the huge oak tree on which was hung the fleece, like to a cloud that blushes red with the fiery beams of the rising sun. But right in front the serpent with its keen sleepless eyes saw them coming, and stretched out his long neck and hissed in awful wise. And all round the long banks of the river echoed, and the boundless grove— those heard it who dwelt in the Colchian land, very far from the Titanian Aia, near the outfall of Lycus, the river which parts from loud-roaring Araxes, and blends his sacred stream with Phasis. And the two flow on together in one, and pour their waters into the Caucasian Sea. And through fear young mothers awoke, and round their newborn babes, who were sleeping in their arms, threw their hands in agony, for the small limbs started at the hiss. And as when above a pile of smouldering wood, countless eddies of smoke roll up mingled with soot, and one ever springs up quickly after another, rising aloft from beneath in wavering wreaths, so at that time did that monster roll his countless coils covered with hard dry scales. And as he writhed, the maiden came before his eyes, with sweet voice calling to her aid sleep, highest of gods, to charm the monster. And she cried to the queen of the underworld, the night wanderer, to be propitious to her enterprise. And Aeson's son followed in fear, but the serpent, already charmed by her song, was relaxing the long ridge of his giant spine, and lengthening out his myriad coils, like a dark wave, dumb and noiseless, rolling over a sluggish sea. 
but still he raised aloft his grisly heads, eager to enclose them both in his murderous jaws. But she, with a newly cut spray of juniper, dipping and drawing untempered charms from her mystic brew, sprinkled his eyes while she chanted her song, and all round the potent scent of the charm cast sleep, and on the very spot he let his jaw sink down, and far behind through the wood with its many trees were those countless coils stretched out. Hereupon Jason snatched the golden fleece from the oak at the maiden bidding, and she, standing firm, smeared with the charm the monster's head, till Jason himself bade her turn back towards their ship, and she left the grove of Ares, dusky with shade. And as a maiden catches on her finely wrought robe the gleam of the moon at the full, as it rises above her high-roofed chamber, and her heart rejoices as she beholds the fair ray, so at that time did Jason uplift the mighty fleece in his hands, and from the shimmering of the flocks of wool there settled on his fair cheeks and brow a red flush like a flame, and great as is the hide of a yearling ox or stag, which huntsmen call a brocket, so great in extent was the fleece all golden above. Heavy it was, thickly clustered with flocks, and as he moved along, even beneath his feet the sheen rose up from the earth, and he strode on now with the fleece covering his left shoulder from the height of his neck to his feet. And now again he gathered it up in his hands, for he feared exceedingly, lest some god or man should meet him and deprive him thereof. Dawn was spreading over the earth when they reached the throng of heroes, and the youths marveled to behold the mighty fleece which gleamed like the lightning of Zeus. And each one started up eager to touch it and clasp it in his hands, but the son of Eson restrained them all and threw over it a mantle newly woven, and he led the maiden to the stern and seated her there, and spoke to them all as follows. No longer, my friends, forbear to return to your fatherland, for now the task for which we dared this grievous voyage, toiling with bitter sorrow of heart, has been lightly fulfilled by the maiden's counsels. Her, for such is her will, I will bring home to be my wedded wife. Do you preserve her the glorious saviour of all Achaia and of yourselves? For of a surety... Will Aetes come with his host to bar our passage from the river into the sea? But do some of you toil at the oars in turn, sitting man by man, and half of you raise your shields of oxhide, a ready defense against the darts of the enemy, and guard our return? And now in our hands we hold the fate of our children, and dear country, and of our aged parents, and on our venture all Hellas depends, to reap either the shame of failure or great renown. Thus he spoke, and donned his armor of war, and they cried aloud, wondrously eager. And he drew his sword from the sheath, and cut the hawsers at the stern. And near the maiden he took his stand, ready armed by the steersman Anias, and with their rowing the ship sped on as they strained desperately to drive her clear of the river. 
By this time, Medea's love and needs had become known to haughty Aetes and to all the Colchians, and they thronged to the assembly in arms and countless as the waves of the stormy sea when they rise crested by the wind, or as the leaves that fall to the ground from the wood with its myriad branches in the month when the leaves fall— who could reckon their tale? So they, in countless number, poured along the banks of the river, shouting in frenzy, and his shapely chariot Aetes shone forth above all with his steeds, the gift of Helios, swift as the blasts of the wind. In his left hand he raised his curved shield, and in his right a huge pine torch, and near him in front stood up his mighty spear, and Absurtus held in his hands the reins of the steeds. But already the ship was cleaving the sea before her, urged on by stalwart oarsmen, and the stream of the mighty river rushing down. But the king, in grievous anguish, lifted his hands and called on Helios and Zeus to bear witness to their evil deeds, and terrible threats he uttered against all his people, that unless they should, with their own hands, seize the maiden either on the land or still finding the ship in the swell of the open sea and bring her back, that so he might satisfy his eager soul with vengeance for all those deeds at the cost of their own lives, they should learn and abide all his rage and revenge. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. 
And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thus spoke Aetes, and on that same day the Colchians launched their ships and cast the tackle on board, and on that same day sailed forth on the sea. You would not say so mighty a host was a fleet of ships, but that a countless flight of birds, swarm on swarm, was clamoring over the sea. Swiftly the wind blew as the goddess Hera planned, so that most quickly Aiai and Medea might reach the Pelasgian land, a bane to the house of Peleus. And on the third morn they bound the ship's stern cables to the shore of the Paphlagonians at the mouth of the river Halys, for Medea bade them land and propitiate Hecate with sacrifice. Now all that the maiden prepared for offering the sacrifice may no man know, and may my soul not urge me to sing thereof. Awe restrains my lips, yet from that time the altar which the heroes raised on the beach to the goddess remains till now a sight to men of a later day. And straightway Aeson's son and the rest of the heroes bethought them of Phineas, how that he had said that their course from Aya should be different, but to all alike his meaning was dim. Then Argus spoke, and they eagerly hearkened. We go to Orchomenus, whither that unerring seer, whom you met aforetime, foretold your voyage, for there is another course, signified by those priests of the immortal gods, who have sprung from Tritonian Thebes. As yet all the stars that wheel in the heaven were not, nor yet, though one should inquire, could aught be heard of the sacred race of the Danai. Apidanian Arcadians alone existed, Arcadians who lived even before the moon, it is said, eating acorns on the hills. Nor at that time was the Pelasgian land ruled by the glorious sons of Deucalion, in the days when Egypt, mother of men of an older time, was called the Fertile Morning Land, and the river fair-flowing Triton, by which all the morning land is watered. And never does the rain from Zeus moisten the earth, but from the flooding of the river abundant crops spring up. From this land it is said a king made his way all round through the whole of Europe and Asia, trusting in the might and strength and courage of his people, and countless cities did he found wherever he came, whereof some are still inhabited and some not, Many an age has passed since then, but Aya abides unshaken even now and the sons of those men whom that king settled to dwell in Aya. They preserve the writings of their fathers, graven on pillars, whereon are marked all the ways and the limits of the sea and land as you journey on all sides round. There is a river, the uttermost horn of ocean, broad and exceeding deep, that a merchant ship may traverse. They call it Ister 
and have marked it far off, and for a while it cleaves the boundless tilth alone in one stream, for beyond the blast of the north wind, far off in the Ripian mountains, it springs burst forth with a roar. But when it enters the boundaries of the Thracians and the Scythians, here dividing its stream into two, it sends its waters partly into the Ionian Sea, and partly into the south, into a deep gulf that bends upwards from the Trinarian Sea, that sea which lies along your land, if indeed Achelous flows forth from your land. Thus he spoke, and to them the goddess granted a happy portent, and all at the sight shouted approval, that this was their appointed path, for before them appeared a trail of heavenly light, a sign where they might pass, and gladly they left behind there the son of Laius, with, and with the canvas outspread sailed over the sea, with their eyes on the Paphlagonian mountains. But they did not round Corambus, for the winds and the gleam of the heavenly fire stayed with them till they reached Ister's mighty stream. Now some of the Colchians, in a vain speech, passed out from Pontus through the Cyanian rocks, but the rest went to the river, and them Absurtus led. And, turning aside, he entered the mouth called Fair, wherefore he outstripped the heroes by crossing a neck of land into the furthest gulf of the Ionian Sea. For a certain island is enclosed by Ister, by name Pui, three-cornered, its base stretching along the coast and with a sharp angle towards the river, and round it the outfall is cleft in two. One mouth they call the mouth of Narex, and the other at the lower end the Fair Mouth. And through this Absurtus and his Colchians rushed with all speed, but the heroes went upwards far away towards the highest part of the island. And in the meadows the country shepherds left their countless flocks for dread of the ships, for they deemed that they were beasts coming forth from the monster-teeming sea. For never yet before had they seen seafaring ships, neither the Scythians mingled with the Thracians, nor the Sagini, nor yet the Graucini, nor the Sindi that now inhabit the vast desert plain of Laurium. But when they had passed near the Mount Angarum, and the cliff of Coliacus, far from the Mount Angarum, round which Ister, dividing his stream, falls into the sea on this side and on that, and on the Laurian plain, then indeed the Colchians went forth into the Cronian Sea, and cut off all the ways to prevent their foes' escape. And the heroes came down the river behind the two, and reached the Brigian islands of Artemis near at hand. Now in one of them was a sacred temple, and on the other they landed, avoiding the host of Absurtus, for the Colchians had left these islands out of many within the river, just as they were, through reverence for the daughter of Zeus. But the rest, thronged by the Colchians, barred the ways to the sea. And so on other islands too, close by, Absurtus left his host, as far as the river Salangon and the Nestian land. There the Minii would at that time have yielded in grim fight, a few to many, but ere then they made a covenant, shunning a dire quarrel, as to the golden fleece, that since Aetes himself had so promised them, if they should fulfill the contest, they should keep it as justly won, whether they carried it off by craft or even openly in the king's despite, but as to Medea, for that was the cause of strife that they should give her in ward to Leto's daughter apart from the throng until some one of the kings that dispensed justice should utter his doom, whether she must return to her father's home or follow the chieftains to the land of Hellas. 
Now when the maiden had mused upon all this, sharp anguish shook her heart unceasingly, and quickly she called forth Jason alone, apart from his comrades, and led him aside until they were far away, and before his face uttered her speech all broken with sobs. What is this purpose that you are now devising about me, O son of Eason? Has your triumph utterly cast forgetfulness upon you, and do you reek nothing of all that you spoke when held fast by necessity? Whither are fled the oaths by Zeus, the suppliant's god? Whither are fled your honied promises, for which in no seemly wise with shameless will I have left my country, the glories of my home, and even my parents, things that were dearest to me, and far away, all alone, I am borne over the sea with the plaintive kingfishers because of your trouble, in order that I might save your life in fulfilling the contest with the oxen and the earthborn men. Last of all, the fleece. When the matter became known, it was by my folly you did win it, and a foul reproach have I poured on womankind." Wherefore I say that, as your child, your bride, and your sister, I follow you to the land of Hellas. Be ready to stand by me to the end. Do not abandon me, left me forlorn when you visit the kings. But only save me, let justice and right, to which we both have agreed, stand firm, or else do you at once shear through this neck with your sword, that I may gain the guerdom due to my mad passion." Poor wretch, if the king to whom you both commit your cruel covenant do me to belong to my brother, how shall I come to my father's sight? Will it be with a good name? What revenge, what heavy calamity shall I not endure in agony for the terrible deeds I've done? And will you win the return that your heart desires? Never may Zeus's bride, the queen of all, in whom you do glory, bring that to pass." May you sometime remember me when you're racked with anguish. May the fleece be like a dream, vanish into the nether darkness on the wings of the wind. And may my avenging furies forthwith drive you from your country for all that I have suffered through your cruelty. These curses will not be allowed to fall unaccomplished to the ground. A mighty oath have you transgressed, ruthless one. But not long shall you and your comrades sit at ease, casting eyes of mockery upon me for all your covenants. Thus she spoke, seething with fierce wrath, and she longed to set fire to the ship and to hew it into utterly into pieces, and herself to fall into the raging flame. But Jason, half afraid, thus addressed her with gentle words. Forbear, lady, me too this pleases not. But we seek some respite from battle, for such a cloud of hostile men, like to a fire, surrounds us on your account. For all that inhabit this land are eager to aid Absurtus, that they may lead you back home to your father like some captured maid. And all of us would perish in hateful destruction if we closed with them in fight, and bitterer still will be the pain if we are slain and leave you to be their prey." But this covenant will weave a web of guile to lead him to ruin, nor will the people of the land for your sake oppose us to favor the Colchians, when their prince is no longer with them, who is your champion and your brother, nor will I shrink from matching myself in fight with the Colchians if they bar my way homeward. Thus he spoke, soothing her, and she uttered a deadly speech. Take heed now, 
For when sorry deeds are done, we must needs devise sorry counsel. For at first I was distraught by my error, and by heaven's will it was I wrought the accomplishment of evil desires. Do you in the turmoil shield me from the Colchian spears, and I will beguile Absurtus to come into your hands? Do you greet him with splendid gifts? If only I could persuade the heralds on their departure to bring him alone to hearken to my words. Thereupon, if this deed pleases you, slay him and raise a conflict with the Colchians, I care not. So they two agreed and prepared a great web of guile for Absurtus and provided many gifts such as are due to guests, and among them gave a sacred robe of Hypsipyle of crimson hue. The graces with their own hands had wrought it for Dionysus in Seagirt Dia, and he gave it to his son Thoas thereafter, and Thoas left it to Hypsipyle, and she gave that fair-wrought guest gift, with many another marvel, to Eason's son to wear. Never could you satisfy your sweet desire by touching it or gazing on it, and from it a divine fragrance breathed from the time when the kings of Nyssa himself lay to rest thereon, flushed with wine and nectar as he clasped the beauteous breast of the maiden daughter of Minos, whom once Theseus forsook in the island of Dia, when she had followed him from Gnossos. And when she had worked upon the heralds to induce her brother to come, as soon as she reached the temple of the goddess, according to the agreement, and the darkness of night surrounded them, that so she might devise with him a cunning plan for her to take the mighty fleece of gold and return it to the home of Aetes, for, she said, the sons of Phrixus had given her by force to the strangers to carry off, with such beguiling words, she scattered to the air and the breezes her witching charms, which even from afar would have drawn down the savage beast from the steep mountain height. Ruthless love, great bane, great curse to mankind. From you come deadly strifes and lamentations and groans and countless pains as well have their stormy birth from you. Arise, you God, and arm yourself against the sons of our foes in such guise as when you did fill Medea's heart with accursed madness. How then by evil doom did she slay Absurtus when he came to meet her? For that must our song tell next. When the heroes had left the maiden on the island of Artemis, according to the covenant, both sides ran their ships to land separately, and Jason went to the ambush to lie in wait for Absurtus and then for his comrades. But he, beguiled by these dire promises, swiftly crossed the swell of the sea in his ship, and in dark night set foot on the sacred island, and faring all alone to meet her he made trial and speech of his sister, as a tender child tries a wintry torrent, which not even strong men can pass through, to see if she would devise some guile against the strangers. And so they two agreed together on everything, and straightway Eason's son leapt forth from the thick ambush, lifting his bare sword in his hands, and quickly the maiden turned her eyes aside and covered them with her veil that she might not see the blood of her brother when he was smitten. And Jason marked him and struck him down as a butcher strikes down a mighty strong-horned bull hard by the temple which the Brygi on the mainland opposite had once built for Artemis. In its vestibule he fell on his knees, and at last the hero breathing out his life caught up in both hands the dark blood as it welled from the wound, 
and he died with red his sister's silvery veil and robe as she shrank away. And with swift side glance, the irresistible, pitiless fury beheld the deadly deed they had done, and the hero Eason's son cut off the extremities of the dead man, and thrice licked up some blood and thrice spat the pollution from his teeth, as it is right for the slayer to do to atone for a treacherous murder. And the clammy corpse he hid in the ground where even now those bones lie among the absurtions. Now as soon as the heroes saw the blaze of a torch which the maiden raised for them as a sign to pursue, they laid their own ship near the Colchian ship, and they slaughtered the Colchian host as kites slay the tribes of wood pigeons, or as lions of the wold, when they have leapt amid the steading, drive a great flock of sheep huddling together. Nor did one of them escape death, but the heroes rushed upon the whole crew, destroying them like a flame, and at last Jason met them and was eager to give aid where none was needed. But already they were taking thought for him, too. Thereupon they sat to devise some prudent counsel for their voyage, and the maiden came upon them as they pondered. But Peleus spoke his words first. I now bid you embark while it is still night, and take with your oars the passage opposite to that which the enemy guards. For at dawn, when they see their plight, I deem that no word urging to further pursuit of us will prevail with them. But as people bereft of their king, they will be scattered in grievous dissension. And easy, when the people are scattered, will this path be for us on our return. Thus he spoke, and the youths assented to their words of Iacchus's son, and quickly they entered the ship and toiled their oars unceasingly until they reached the sacred isle of Electra, the highest of them all, near the river Eridanus. But when the Colchians learnt the death of their prince, verily they were eager to pursue Argo and the Minions through the Cronian Sea, but Hera restrained them by terrible lightnings from the sky, and at last they loathed their own homes in the Chitean land, quailing before Aetes's fierce wrath. So they landed and made abiding homes there, scattered far and wide, some set foot on those very islands where the heroes had stayed, and they still dwell there, bearing a name derived from Absurtus. And others built a fenced city by the dark, deep Illyrian river, where is the tomb of Harmonia and Cadmus, dwelling among the Enchaleans. And others live amid the mountains which are called the Thunderers, from the day when the thunders of Zeus, son of Kronos, prevented them from crossing over the island opposite. Now the heroes, when their return seemed safe for them, fared onward, and made their hawsers fast to the land of the Hylians, for the islands lay thick in the river, and made the path dangerous for those who sailed nearby. Nor, as at our time, did the Hylians devise their hurt, but of their own accord furthered their passage, winning as a Gerdon a mighty tripod of Apollo. For two tripods had Phoebus given to Aeson's son to carry afar in the voyage he had to make at the time when he went to sacred Pitho to inquire about this very voyage, and it was ordained by fate that in whatever land they should be placed, that land should never be ravaged by the attacks of foemen. Therefore even now this tripod is hidden in that land near the pleasant city of Hylas, far beneath the earth, that it may never be unseen by mortals. Yet they found not King Hylas still alive in the land, whom fair Melite bare to Heracles in the land of the Phaeacians, 
for he came to the abode of Nausithus, and to Macris, the nurse of Dionysus, to cleanse him from the deadly murder of his children. Here he loved and overcame the water-nymph Molite, the daughter of the river Aegeus, and she bare mighty Hylas. But when he had grown up, he desired not to dwell in that island under the rule of Nausithus the king, but he collected a host of native Phaeacians and came to the Cronian Sea, for the hero king Nausithus aided his journey, and there he settled, and the Mentores slew him as he was fighting for the oxen in his field. Now, goddesses, say how it is that beyond the sea, near the land of the Ausonia and the Ligestian Isles, which are called the Stochiades, the mighty tracks of the ship Argo are clearly sung of? What great constraint and need brought the heroes so far? What breezes wafted them? Uh, thank you all so much for listening. I really do enjoy reading all of these. They're just so fun, and I think you get such a different vibe out of them, you know? Because I'm not giving you my crazy judgments. You can hear them in my tone, sure, but you still get to make your own decisions. Anyway, Jason's a lying sack of shit who basically constantly continued to get Medea to do all of the work for him, promised her everything, promised he would be with her forever, promised her marriage, promised her all of these things that he ultimately uh, took back because he's an absolute shit. Anyway, this is seriously fun. Next week, part two of book four, the final book in the Argonautica. Thank you all so much. As always, you are the best. I am Liv and I love this shit. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.